Okay, um, we're going to get started, um, and uh, I think Bill is going to join us in a, in a few moments. Uh, so, hello and welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks very much for coming to this uh, panel on a net zero energy system. Uh, thanks very much to Tusney for sponsoring the panel uh, today. Um, so, this is clearly a hot topic at conference. Um, we've heard sort of yesterday and today about a new target for a uh, having a, a sort of uh, a power system ready for net zero by 2030. Um, we've also heard about a sort of green prosperity plan and a sovereign wealth fund with big new investments in renewables and manufacturing in the UK. Um, so clearly going to be a big issue for Labour at conference and increasingly perhaps a sort of dividing line um, with the approach being taken by the new trust government. Um, so I'm delighted to be joined by a great panel to unpick all of that and answer your questions. Um, so Bill Easton, who is going to join us, um, is Shadow Minister for Business and Industry. Um, Sue Ferns is Deputy General Secretary at Prospect and has been on the TUC General Council since 2005. And she's been very active on sustainable development issues and is a trustee of the Science Council. Uh, Guy Newey is the Chief Executive Officer of Energy Systems Catapult and was a special advisor to Greg Clark and Amber Rudd during their time at Bayes, and before that worked for the energy supplier Ovo. Uh, and Sam Alvis is head of economy at Green Alliance. Uh, so I'm gonna start by asking the panel some questions, uh, and then we'll then have plenty of time for questions from you as well. And we'll be tweeting the event at IFG Labor if you do want to tweet along. Uh, Guy, I'll start with you. Um, so can you set the scene for us a bit uh, and describe the kind of the challenge involved in terms of getting the energy system that we need to reach net zero? Great. Well, the, the first challenge is to recognise that the energy system we have at the moment is barely functioning. Uh, a world where you've got, where you've, the government's got to spend the best part of 150 billion quid uh, just to keep it going uh, means we're in a pretty bad, uh, we're a bad spot. And if you look at that from, from pretty much every angle, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, the survival of retailers, uh, ability to get new generation on side, can we build anything quick enough? Um, uh, can we get, you know, can the trading function work properly? Can we get enough liquidity into this market? You know, it is a pretty tough spot. So it makes it very hard to think about what you're going to need to do over the next 10, 15 years uh, to, to achieve that. So just parking that little bit uh, to one side of uh, the system slightly melting down, um, what are the biggest, the biggest challenges? Well, I could come up with a list as, as long as my own, but the ones that worry us uh, in the kind of innovation space, uh, and I say worry us, the ones that excite us most and the ones where there's the kind of greatest opportunity, if you, if you will, for, for innovators. So one is how are we going to get this uh, to this uh, new power system, which is probably going to be double in size and is going to need to be clean um, in the next uh, uh, 15 years or... You know, if you, if you believe what Labour are committing to today in the next uh, eight years, how are, we gonna, going to, how are we going to get that? How is it going to work as efficiently as possible? Because the system we're moving to, ones with um, a lot of renewables on it, uh, with electric vehicles, with uh, more heat pumps, uh, with more electrification, that is a much more difficult system to run than the one we are used to. So that is a huge uh, and exciting 
uh, innovation challenge, but it is a profound change, which I don't think in all the kind of announcing of targets that we've had over the last five years, um, uh, that the political uh, kind of class has really, really grappled with. So that's one of the, one of the biggest challenges. I'd say, but I'd say that's a, that's a smaller one versus the second one that I talk about, which is how we're going to decarbonize our buildings, where the progress has been uh, much, much slower. And that's more difficult because that involves people. And that involves people in their homes, people in their workplaces, uh, and uh, uh, people are nervous about new systems that they're unfamiliar with. So thinking about the technology challenge, the consumer challenge, uh, the, uh, the, the, the physics of a, a different buildings and how you're going to do that is an enormously difficult uh, challenge uh, to work through. I could talk about industrial decarbonization, about carbon capture and storage, about how we're going to build enough nuclear that we need. Uh, well, take take us a little bit into that energy mix yeah, and some yeah. of the challenges, because I think we've heard, you know, in this, this talk about the Sovereign Wealth Fund, we've talked about offshore and sort of making more ambitious targets there. We've talked about onshore uh, and then this big new nuclear ambition. But what do you see as, you know, because those are some pretty big numbers that we're talking about, but actually yeah. doing it and getting that capacity. And well, the... the, the, the all of these things you can do in a model, right? You know, we at the Energy Systems Catapult will run scenario models looking at different options for 2030, and well, you can run a scenario without nuclear, you can run a scenario without carbon capture, you can run a scenario without renewables, but they're all about what you need to believe in order to deliver that. And the truth is that the size of the challenge is so profound, as I say, a doubling uh, of, of the uh, power system over the next 20, 30 years. Um, uh, you know, building what it took us 100 years to build and in a clean way and then building it again uh, is, is, is absolutely huge. So anyone who is in the business of ruling out technologies early on, saying, oh, we don't need this or we don't need this, or, we don't need the other, uh, I don't think is taking the challenge as seriously as it, uh, as it, as it needs to be. Um, you've also got that it's got to work for everyone, right? It's got to be a system, people are not going to be relaxed about their electricity going off for a couple of hours uh, uh, a week or anything like that. And it's got to work for the most vulnerable. They've got to, got to, um, you know, got to have innovation working for, for all aspects of, of society. I think the, what, the one thing I'd say is, you know, that just being honest about the size of the challenge, but the size of the opportunity is incredibly exciting. And the innovators we work with at Energy Systems Catapult, and indeed all of the Catapult uh, network across the country, people, you know, companies are really up for this opportunity. And there are some brilliant British companies across all of this space who are going, who see all the challenges I've just talked about and, and see a great opportunity to, to thrive and to grow and to. Uh, and to take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, and just a couple of quick questions on what's coming out from Labour sort of over the last couple of days. I mean, we've heard this um, sort of language of, of making the UK a sort of clean energy superpower, more of a focus on manufacturing, and we've also heard that 2030 target which you referenced as well. I mean, do you think that's credible and do you welcome the sort of general shift in, um, in language around sort of making it more around a sort of industrial drive as well as... So the, targets. so the chatting to, chatting to innovators, so that could be SMEs, that could be big companies who are making bets, right? What do they need in order to have confidence to invest in the changes that need to get to the system, right? They need a general sense of direction and, and you know, the targets, etc., cetera, uh, help with that. But they need real markets, they need real uh, 
you know, real customers that they can they, they can sell into, real demand for their products and services. So the targets are really helpful in that direction of travel. It's the how is that actually going to work. How am I actually going to finance my nuclear plant? How am I actually going to think about uh, I'm providing demand-side response to the system? How am I actually going to get that market signal signal back? And what we've had, if, you know, and this is not a party political point, over the last kind of five or six years, we've had lots of kind of of the, of the ambition side, you know, X gigawatts, uh, yeah. Y. What we haven't had enough of is the kind of, and this is going to be the market framework, this is going to be the regulatory framework, which is going to allow people to take a risk, raise finance, and invest on the level that we need to. Brilliant. Um, Bill, I'll come to you next, and I think we've got you until uh, 4.45, haven't we? Um, so I'll give the audience a chance to ask you mm -hmm. some... You've got a bit longer. got a bit longer. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for This is that rare example where we, where you have. Yes. Excellent. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, so I'm going to come on. I want to ask you about some of the things Labour's been announcing yeah. over the last couple of days. But before I get onto that, what should we make of the, the new government's approach to, to net zero as far as we've seen so far? And, and in particular, this question yeah. of getting the energy system to well, net zero. Well, the first question is I don't accept the premise, which is it's a new government. Um, they've been in power for 12 years. Uh, and their record is atrocious. They undermined the, what was a promising wind industry in 2010, which had world-leading status, which we promptly lost. Um, they cut the feed-in tariffs for solar and um, the closure of the gas storage, which was by Liz Truss in 2017, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, was uh, a pretty disastrous decision given the experience we have now. Um, as to their announcements, there are, I mean, there's a, there's a number of points. One is that there really was nothing about the investment or the plans for, for energy in what the Chancellor said on, mm. on Friday, so much so he didn't mention net zero in his speech. Um, as for the market reaction and the reality of repeating what Anthony Barber did 50 years ago, uh, which my, of which my memory as a seven-year-old, by the way, is what great fun it was to have candles on the table during the power cuts, not realising what, uh, what the policy framework was behind it. Um, it didn't work then, it won't work now. We can see the, the collapse in the pound, we can see gilt yields going through the roof. Investor confidence was already crushingly low. We have to turn investor confidence around. I think it's to the point you, 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 you were making. The question is, how do we do it? Uh, we've set out bold plan, there's no question about that, uh, but it is the scale of the challenge that we're trying to meet. And 2030 for self-sufficiency in renewable electricity is a, a key staging post, but there is much more to do. We have to make decisions on nuclear, we have to invest heavily into, into hydrogen, there are some things that only hydrogen can do, including aviation um, and parts, other parts of transport. We've got really good plans in the northwest at the moment with a pilot with, with high net of industrial heat, uh, energy powering industrial heat. Uh, and that, that has to be the, the, the way forward. You're not going to get this in opposition giving every detail of, uh, of, of what it will look like, but it is important we, we give as much confidence as, uh, as, as we can. I do accept that point, which is where the £28 billion a year climate transformation fund gives the indication to investors. Somehow we've got to build investor confidence. Government alone isn't going to do this. There's no question about that. But what is really important to recognise is just how well placed we are in this country right now, just like we were with wind in 2010. 
we've got some of the most advanced, exciting projects in hydrogen, in carbon capture and storage, in tidal, including again in this region with the Mersey Tidal Barrage. Uh, and the same applies in things like uh, retrofit and the technology there for, for energy efficiency measures in, in, the, in 19 million homes, which again is a very, very big ticket plan that we have, 6 billion a year there, uh, out of that 28 billion overall. These plans, if we invest into them, are ways of completely resetting our economy, of delivering prosperity, of delivering the, the skilled jobs, and delivering the prosperity, of turning, of, of doing levelling up, actually. Um, the retrofit strategy will happen in every community in the country. It's a great way of levelling up, because it will do, uh, yeah, there's good, good examples again in this region. A company called EcoG, who I'm at here, was with them yesterday. They are recruiting and training local people to put insulation on homes and to fit uh, replacement windows. It's that kind of, of, of approach, that kind of bold, uh, innovative thinking that is presaged by our industrial strategy published today, Prosperity Through Partnership. And it will be that partnership between government nationally, government in the regions, uh, and, and the private sector and the trade unions that will deliver to this agenda. Yeah. And just, you've mentioned it briefly there on nuclear. Mm. Um, just take us a bit more into Labour's position on that. I mean, we've seen from the government actually in the the, um, the energy security strategy sort of published midway into this energy crisis, a sort of big step up in ambition on nuclear, the idea that by 2050 it might meet a quarter of uh, demand. But do you think there's sort of actually underneath that, do you think there's things that government needs to be doing to actually make sure this happens? And how, how would Labour... Well, well, ta well taking if, if they'd been a bit take quicker, or in fact, if they'd taken any decisions in the last 12 years until Boris Johnson finally announced something just before he left office, that would give a bit more confidence. Again, you know, that word again, we need confidence from, from, for, for investors. Um, you know, we took those decisions in 2008 and 2009, which the government then delayed because Nick Clegg didn't want to get nuclear power up, up and running when he came in as, as Deputy Prime Minister. Now, at least we've now got uh, Hinkley Point, which is you know, an amazing, again, talking technology, it's an amazing example of building power uh, nuclear power stations, the, uh, the most advanced in the world. We've actually developed a whole new industry for building nuclear power stations, so we can do the same at Hinkley and we can export it around the world. It's that, you know, they've got to you know, there's got to be investment into that agenda too. Uh, yes, it's not going to happen quickly, but we are going to need it as base load for years to come. So I suppose in that sense I agree with what the government says, but what the government says and what the government does are two very different things. Yeah. Okay, well that's a good point to come to you, Sue. Um, I mean, you represent workers in a lot of these different industries. What's your sense from your members of what's needed to support this transition in the energy system? Um, so the first thing to say is our members are up for the transition and, and the transition won't happen without them. Um, very much welcome the announcements that's been made over the past couple of days because I think that recognises the need for a transformational change and the fact that energy policy has to be supported and linked to an industrial policy. What I want to emphasise though alongside that is the need for um, a real strategy and delivery mechanism on skills and workforce development. It's not just about the physical infrastructure, it has to be about investment in the workforce as well. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have the skills, you're not going to be able to deliver that transformation. 
And we know there's quite a challenge there. So in nuclear alone, uh, we need to recruit 3,200 staff every year, and each new power, new build power station can create as many as 10,000 roles at peak construction. And the point about these is that these are good jobs. They're good jobs for the people who are doing them. They're very important in all the regions and nations where those jobs are needed for, um, use that horrible government phrase, levelling up, and they are key drivers in those economies, including uh, in the supply chain as well. So we need a comprehensive skills strategy, we need fair pay, decent terms and conditions, and accelerated action on workforce diversity. That's what we need, and our members are up for that. But there is a key role for government as well, and I just want to highlight three points. First of all, the point around just transition. We know where we want to get to. The journey to get there is crucially important. We have to ensure that the workers at the front line of these changes, their communities and consumers are at the heart of energy transition, not the markets, the people. Markets, of course, have an important role to play, but this, this transition will happen by working with key stakeholders and communities to deliver good quality jobs. And it's important that it's not just the objective, it's not just the targets, it's not just the warm words we've had from government. It's all about setting out that delivery pathway. And I would say, what's happened to Great British Nuclear? Actually, what is it going to mean? We were all geared up for that announcement at the end of the summer. We're still waiting for it. It's not good enough. So, you know, it is about delivery, about providing... Uh, government direction and direct investment where it's needed as well um, is, is all very important. And of course, you know, what we've got now from the current government is uh, a short-term fix. They needed to make a short-term fix. Whether they made it in the right way is open to debate. But at the same time, we've got that question mark now over the Energy Security Bill, which is where we see some of the long-term strategy being delivered um, and it's a huge gamble isn't it the prices are going to stay uh, are going to subside um, I don't think that is the case I think we're in a game changer situation so absolutely we need to deal with the current crisis I would say we need to do it in a way that's fairer to middle income and low income cons uh, customers but at the same time, we've got to get on with that long-term solution, sustainable strategy that is a whole systems, low-carbon strategy, and clear plans for delivery. Great, thanks, Sue. And, um, so Sam, just before I open it up for questions from the audience, um, you've looked quite a lot in your work at Green Alliance, at sort of how you support these green industries, the role of skills in that. Um, you've also been watching quite closely the announcements coming out the last few days and you keep a fairly close eye on what the government does too. I mean, what do you see as the, the main priorities there? Yeah, so I think it's, this conference has been really interesting because it's, it's been about the Labour Party with the latest iteration of the Conservative government looking for dividing lines. And energy has all of a sudden become a new dividing line because there are very different ways of getting to a net zero energy system. So we've done a little work looking at its interactions with the economy, its interactions with the labour market. And the first thing to say is however you are decarbonising, 
the energy system, it is good for the economy for a couple of reasons. The first is that we spend a lot of money at the moment importing fossil fuels. If we make them here, that delivers huge productivity benefits, both because these are highly skilled jobs, as Sue said, based here, but also because we are not wasting that money going elsewhere. That money is staying in the local economy. And secondly, the low carbon forms of energy on average, have three times the level of secure, skilled work, so that's the, the top level of ONS skill classification, in comparison to gas and coal. So these are much better quality jobs and therefore better paid jobs, which is hugely encouraging. But the how, which proportion, which balance of technologies you're using, has big implications for where those jobs are, the level of jobs, and in particular local labour markets. So we compared some numbers actually very similar to what Labour has announced today, um, or yesterday, sorry, four times offshore wind, three times the size of solar, twice uh, the size of onshore wind, with the British Energy Security Strategy, which I presume is still government's current energy strategy. It may be gone, um, rather like I think the energy bill will do soon. Um, and what you find actually is that the energy security strategy, with this huge increase in nuclear, concentrates very good jobs in very particular places. So you see the Southwest, for example, needing to increase its power sector employment by 353%. The West Midlands, 415%. These are huge numbers. Whereas leaning a bit more towards the Labour plan, you actually balance that a bit better across the country. So because you're using onshore wind, you're using solar, you're looking at an average of a 200% employment. It is still four times the size of local labour markets, but it starts to look a little bit more manageable. And the point, to, I think, to focus on, particularly with Labour's plan, is by 2030, in 2030, 80% of the people currently working in the labour market will still be in the labour market. This is very much a current employment problem um, rather than just hoping it's going to be filled by lots of new people. And the last distinction is the balance between the long-term work and the short-term work. So nuclear and onshore wind are both fantastic because what they do is they have a greater proportion of long-term skilled work compared to offshore wind which has a lot of people employed in the construction and then a bit of a drop-off in comparison to those other forms of technology. So it's really important for both government and Labour Party to be very distinct about what balance of technologies they're going to be looking for because you need that then to plan how you're going to get those people into the labour market to, to fit it. And we can talk a bit about some of the, the policies that, that might do that. But the, the things that are giving me a headache um, are what implication that then has for the grid and our ability to actually get that power to people, um, what that means for the retail market, like there's been proposals around hiving off renewable energy into its own green power pool and using that as a way of lowering bills. The numbers I've just talked about are with the existing level of energy demand. It's probably best if we sacrifice some of those top range job numbers to actually just use less energy overall. And finally, what it means for ownership. So the sovereign wealth fund today uh, will be taking stakes probably in, in various aspects of renewable generation and what that means for our ability to meet those targets. Um, I'm just going to ask one more question of the panel before throwing it open. Uh, I might bring Guy in on this one as well, but Sam, I'll start with you. We often talk about offshore wind as being this sort of UK success story. We know you've sort of seen a steep fall in price, and we've seen the UK sort of deploy quite a lot of offshore wind. But then you also hear sort of criticisms of the fact that we didn't manage to domesticate so much of that supply mm. chain during that transition. I think you saw it 
referenced in Rachel Reeves' speech today, the fact that we're using sort of blades manufactured in China, whatever it is. So do you think there's a kind of question there for labour when you're talking about the sort of different components of your net zero energy system and all these sort of different things we're talking about, whether they're thinking about, you know, the jobs first, the jobs element first, or the kind of, you know, the effectiveness of those energies towards the transition? Yeah, it's really interesting. So it <laughs> jobs are very good to win elections. Uh, and it is, it is a fantastic message to say we are spending this money and it's a really tangible benefit that people understand. And actually climate action and jobs is one of the strongest messages you can tell. Coming into government, there's going to be a, clear, a really clear-eyed view, actually, of what can we produce in this country and produce quickly. And to meet these level of targets, we are going to have to continue to import for a while. And actually, Rachel Reeves on day one will have to have a conversation with the Treasury, who quite like cheap imports. Um, it's baked into their thinking. So, yes, we can do more here, but I think being clear-eyed about the proportion and actually some of the institutional inertia that might stop that within government um, is going to be quite important. I was just going to say, we've got to do something about the, uh, the, the exchange rate for cheap imports. Yeah, well, yeah, true. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I mean, I, I, think, um, I think it's really... You're, you're, you're right. Of course we want jobs out of this. You know, if you're going to take people with you, the what's-in-it-for-me element of it is important. But increasingly, it's around the, it is around the kind of jobs if they are exciting, skilled jobs, if they are transformative. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Went to visit Cadence at their um, head facility in, in, in Manchester. And I met some of the engineers. And they were, they were showing me the work they'd done to upgrade the, the, the network and introduce me to the apprentices. When the conversation turned to hydrogen, they came alive. These are, these are people who've been working in the industry for 20 years. And the, the opportunity to do something new and real and exciting and transformative really captures their imagination. And I find the same again and again when I talk to people involved in carbon capture and storage or tidal or wind. Mm. People are really excited by this. Uh, I think there is a, an in, still a lot of work to do to take people with us, but explaining this exciting opportunity uh, you know, is, it's not as important as the jobs or the climate aspects of it or the energy security aspects of it but it is part of the how we get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just... So, you know, at, at a high level, you look at the kind of names of some of the companies that are developing um, uh, some of the big offshore wind turbines, and people say, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's foreign-owned companies that are doing some of that. But if, if um, you know, Sister Catapult uh, of, of me here, the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult would be here, they'd be talking about lots of the innovations... <laughs> Uh, whether it's around blade technology or around uh, towers, or around cabling, etc., which, um, which are driven by British innovation as, as much as, as elsewhere and have been a crucial part of getting the cost down. And that goes right up the supply chain to uh, you know, uh, lawyers and the finance side, etc., where there's, there's, there's much innovation going on elsewhere. So I, 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 I totally understand why you want to make that as a political point, and it'd be great if as much of it was captured as possible. But I just, just, a, just, a, just temper it a bit in that it, it often suggests there isn't brilliant innovation happening, because Bill's talking about that. That excitement is across the board in the energy yeah. oh, yeah. space, and it's people, you know, engineers devoting their lives to, to trying to come up with a, with a challenge. And that's an incredibly compelling uh, prospect. Now, where exactly, you know, and you, you see that in the nuclear industry as, mm -hmm. as well, I would say. Yes, so, I, I, you know, there is, there, 
where, where the kind of the badge and the corporate headquarters might be is not the simple story for, for everything that we, yeah, that we talk really about. Sue? That's true, although it's also true that offshore wind has failed to deliver on the jobs that were promised. Um, look, I think energy security and net zero go hand in hand. Um, we are looking at a country, a society that is increasingly unequal, unequal access to opportunities, uh, unequal access to good jobs. There's a huge opportunity here, and as people from the labour movement, we should want to grasp that opportunity. So I think, of course it won't happen all overnight, but we need to develop UK supply chains. And those supply chains don't have to be exactly where the nuclear power plants are. They can be throughout the UK. It's a matter of industrial policy to do that. We have a government at the moment that pays lip service to social value. I would hope that the incoming Labour government would be serious about social value so that we have a balancing, a different balance of criteria that is taken into account. And I did say in my opening remarks, but I make no apology for saying it again, this has to be a just transition. You have to take people with you on that journey. And that does mean, if it was your job, your livelihood, your community, you would absolutely care about that. We should care about that for all of our fellow citizens. Yeah. Yeah. OK, I'm going to open it up for questions. If you put your hand up and then say who you are and where you come from. I'll come for the lady in red first, uh, and then the man in the suit and the tie. Thanks very much indeed, Tom. I'm Rosa Wilkinson from the High Value Manufacturing Catapult. One of the things that worries me in this space is that with perhaps the exception of Guy's team at the Energy Systems Catapult, too often we look down slim slices of energy generating technology when we're looking at what the supply chains need to be. And I fear that we have massively underestimated the level of demand for some of the common resources across those yeah. supply chains. Yeah. It's a real fear for me. One of the things that perhaps stops some companies that could transition into the energy uh, generating supply chain is the fear that government has a rather bad habit of short-termism when it comes to energy strategy. Um, certainly we've seen a bit of flick-flacking on the nuclear front, but it's happened in other areas too. How can we make sure that we pull potential suppliers into the nuclear, sorry, the energy strands uh, rather than their current areas of engineering business? Okay, and I'll take another one from Richard. Uh, Hi, I'm Richard Jones from the University of Manchester. So, uh, Bill, you, you mentioned the 2008 nuclear white paper and that, that uh, did launch the prospect of new nuclear build, but it, uh, it, it set out a very clear expectation that it would be energy companies that did the funding and development yeah. of new nuclear. Mm. So is the Labour Party now prepared to go further in terms of uh, intervening to make sure it happens? And I would stress kind of three things that I think need to happen. I think there needs to be a commitment to a fleet build so that one, rather than just building a single power station, one builds a series of power stations to capture learning by doing, to drive the capital costs down, to create those supply chains. I mean, is it prepared to actually take the capital cost of uh, uh, nuclear power stations onto the government balance sheet? Because I think 
uh, the, the failure of funding models so far seems to me to indicate that that's uh, necessary. And then thirdly, uh, and following on from those last two, a commitment to build UK supply chains to make sure that, that there's a significant component, particularly at the high value parts of, the, uh, uh, of these uh, stations, uh, that that benefit does come to UK industry. So uh, how far is the, uh, is, will the Labour government go in intervening to make sure that these things happen? Great, thank you. Um, Guy, I'll start with you and give Bill a moment. Yeah, just, just on the... Yeah, I mean, the, the nuclear story is a is a plague on, on both your houses. And I admire Bill for his kind of uh, defense of it. And, I've, you know, somebody who's been in, in government on the, on the other side, we, we got it totally wrong. Um, you know, the lessons from around the world is if you want to have a successful nuclear program, you need to, it's, it's actually quite boring. You build a nuclear power station and then you build another one in the same design and you build another one in the same design. Yeah. South Korea... Uh, France in the 70s, you know, those are the successful ones that do it. And you get innovation by doing. Guess what? Exactly the same way you do in the offshore wind chain and yeah, solar yeah, and all, yeah, those, yeah. all those technologies. So we haven't got that right. We've been in this arcane discussion about government balance sheet and government balance sheet when it's nuclear power, right? It's on the government's balance sheet. It's just that nature. Once it's built, you can sell it off. It's an asset. Uh, you don't need to worry about it. But during the construction phase, that's the, that's the risk. Um, and, of course, that then feeds into the supply chain point. So, um, and I, I think that's probably the best example of what, what Rosa was talking about, about that, you know, kind of hokey-cokey approach to uh, policy. Nuclear's probably been the biggest victim. And guess what? In areas where we haven't done that, where we've stuck with it through uh, offshore wind or, or, or other technologies, then we are capturing more. I take Sue's point, we have captured the full industrial benefit. We've captured more of the industrial benefit than we, than, than we do that, right? There's not tens of thousands of engineers and uh, uh, workers sitting around just waiting for the government to, to do stuff, right? They'll go and work on roads. You need that in energy, you know, 10, 20-year commitment. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, it's not going to happen, or it's going to become incredibly expensive. Well, just to agree, absolutely, um, we need long-term certainty uh, in energy policy, and we haven't had it for, for decades. Uh, investors need it, operators need it, the workforce needs it. And I think, you know, you only do that by joining up uh, political strand, the industrial strand, and the employment strand. Actually, what we need here is a... a cross-party consensus about what we need to yep. do because if, it, if you don't have that consensus you're locked into four or five year cycles that are never going to work for energy policy so I think we need to think of a, of a way in which to create that or a device or a governance mechanism to create that my union has called for the establishment of a national energy agency which could operate on a cross-party basis with experts and stakeholder input to it. Maybe that's not the perfect model, but we certainly need a vehicle uh, that's a consensual cross-party vehicle to build and sustain that long-term strategy so that everybody can have confidence in the future. Yeah. Bill, a few useful tests from uh, Richard there. Well, for, yeah, for uh, I, would, I would expect nothing less from Richard. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really, they're, they're critical questions because we, we have to know how we're going to deliver uh, a, uh, a, a detailed nuclear program over, over years to come. I completely accept that, that, that point. 
Um, the way the government has, has outlined funding so far is uh, not is, is, uh, has been. I mean, the reliance on China is looking uh, like a worse and worse decision. All, all the time, isn't it? Um, so we're clearly going to have to review this. I'm not going to sit here now and tell you how, because uh, I don't think uh, there is an answer to it yet. But uh, we, we got. I think the best answer I give is what Keir Starmer said about some of this, about being pragmatic. We're going to look at what works. The intention, the direction of travel is there with £28 billion a year, Climate Transformation Fund. Um, that's prob probably all I, I could say. I think it's probably all we could say right now, other than to say we have to do this. As to supply chain resilience, that is implicit, it's explicit actually in the, in the industrial strategy. Um, we have to shorten supply chains, we have to use government procurement to support domestic uh, manufacturing capacity. I mean, to your point, Guy, about why these turbines are coming halfway around the world, it is, it is absurd when we manufacture very high quality steel in the UK that we don't use it to make our wind turbines. Those are the sorts of changes that, 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 uh, that really do have to happen alongside a proper investment in skills. We've got the Skills Commission that David Blunkett is, is chairing. These are, are, are fundamental parts of, of what the, the Commission is, is, is looking at. Um, but as to the international elements, we, we, yeah, we don't have the natural resources, so we have to import. We have, but you, you, we're gonna, only going to succeed by having constructive relationships with our nearest neighbours and by having constructive neighbours around the world, uh, constructive relationships around the world. You know, our, our agenda in government is about partnership, partnership with business and with the trade unions, but it's international partnership too. And continuing the uh, kind of um, belligerent language and attitudes towards the European Union, um, similarly elsewhere in the world, is not going to get us very far. Uh, in a, an unfriendly world where we have Putin's aggression and others, other uh, dangerous potential dictators around the world, uh, that uncertainty means we have to develop alliances. We have to develop international partnerships for security, national security, for energy security and for supply chains. Uh, and I think that, that's where we've got to get to. Um, and yes, that does apply to Brexit and addressing the, you know, a constructive way forward with the European Union um, in, in trade. Yeah, uh, just two quick follow-ups on that. I mean, yeah. I take the point that you can't sort of set out your fully detailed nuclear sure. strategy right now. Um, does investment for nuclear, is that included within that 28 billion uh, figure that's been talked about? I know it hasn't been sort of divvied yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, look, the... Tw the the, the 26 bil 28 billion, what we have identified is 3 billion for clean steel and 6 billion for the uh, energy efficiency measures in, in, in domestic housing a year. Um, the rest of it is, is, is unallocated, you're quite right about that. But what it is designed to do is, is to pump prime. Yeah. It's designed to leverage in private sector funding. It's the only way this is going to work. Yeah. And then I wonder if you'd just pick up Sue's comment about cross-party yeah, consensus. I know you Sorry, I, know I, meant, I, meant, I meant to. Um, yeah. well, so, so an industrial strategy is only going to work if yeah. it is multi-parliament, um, multi, uh, and say multi-generational, actually, that's true too, um, and it will only work if we, if we rebuild consensus between political parties. Yeah, uh, we, we I mean, Vince Cable, to his credit, had an industrial strategy uh, in the coalition, 
Uh, Greg Clark had an, had an industrial strategy, but I don't think he had much, had much cabinet support, and we haven't seen one since. And uh, I think all we're promised from Jacob Rees-Mogg is an industrial strategy fitting with the 18th century, which absolutely isn't going to get us anywhere. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely, it's got to be uh, cross-party. Sam, I wondered if you wanted to pick up either on uh, Rick's question about nuclear or on, um, or on the other question. Yeah, just very quickly on supply chains. I think one of the things, and this is where I'm delighted to hear some of the 28 billion isn't allocated yet because I can make my little pitch for, <laughs> for some of it, is that... Um, so it, might, it, might get, it might end up getting spent a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we haven't talked a lot about the circular economy, and I think it's like the next thing to be talking about when we're talking about energy and resource use and building. And actually, a partnership between the UK steel industry and its renovation and the offshore wind industry about how we have greater steel recycling, greater turbine recycling, can really start to drive down prices in, in doing that and reducing, um, shortening those supply chains. Let's take some more questions. So I'll come up the front here, um, come to this gentleman and that gentleman there. I'll take three. Hello, um, Ajay Lawalia, uh, Dulwich CLP and uh, Executive Committee of CIRA as well as being a renewable energy professional. Um, just a couple, one reflection and one question if I can. Um, I don't think we should underestimate the positive things that have actually happened in the last 10 years, particularly when it comes to offshore wind. Offshore wind will become the backbone of the energy system and I think the industry has a lot to be proud of in terms of what it's actually achieved. Um, just to correct. Uh, the MP, hopefully it's not in a disrespectful way, is to say that uh, not many of our wind turbines are actually manufactured in other parts of the world. The majority of them are actually built in Europe and we are doing great things with building blades in Hull. The Siemens Gamesa plant, this is an example as well. My reflection, uh, sorry, my question is more about how this 28 billion will be spent and understanding how we can create those, um, those good jobs by uh, giving industry enough confidence to build those factories. Um, there are examples where people have committed to building facilities which would create those good jobs but have actually pulled the plug in terms of their investment because they're not confident in what will happen in the market. So my question to the panel is, it's more about the how which guys uh, spoke to, which is how can we give industry the confidence to make these big capital expenditures which will create the jobs and those circular economies that Sam spoke about as well. Thank you. Um, can I offer a, a, a comment and then perhaps ask a question? So, say who you are and where you are. Louis Plowden Wardler from Terrestrial Energy. Uh, so, we're an advanced nuclear vendor. And so, I suppose the comment is that the, in order to create confidence to invest in the UK in the nuclear business, you need some sort of mechanism whereby you have some sense of pathway of route to market. And the micromanagement and sense that government should make the policy here is um, antithetical to this. And by way of contrast, for example, I spent some time in the offshore wind business building something called Sandbeck 24 of Germany. And in that case, there was a piece of legislation that mandated a certain amount of uh, euro cents per kilowatt hour for any offshore electricity generated. So capital providers could look at a potential project, they knew the cash flows that would flow from it, do their sums and make a decision. It wasn't the German government choosing the turbines and the sites. So a mechanism like that could be helpful to um, 
kickstart the uh, nuclear, whether advanced or, or, or traditional. Secondly, I'm not sure that there is an awareness of the potential for high temperature advanced nuclear to power the re-onshoring of industry that uses a lot of process heat. For example, ammonia production, hydrogen production, various chemical processes that have generally gone elsewhere because there they're allowed to pollute. And I, I think that it's worth considering those and I still detect a, a reluctance and that nuclear is somehow perceived as a, a slightly unwelcome uncle at the party on the left of the political spectrum. And I, I hope that's not the case. Okay, thank you. We'll take one more there. I'll stand up so I can say, oh, very loud, I'm very loud. I sing in a band, you see, it's projection. Um, I'll stand up so I can see you, Bill, because uh, I've got a question specifically about industrial benefits. I'm Ian Waddle. I'm the General Secretary of the Confederation of Shipbuilding and Engineering Unions. So my two points are unashamedly linked with shipbuilding, um, but they're linked to this energy debate. And the first is that um, under current government plans, the UK is going to need 220 specialist installation vessels to install our offshore wind um, plants. Um, the USA... Japan and Taiwan have already mandated that their installation vessels will be built in their country. Will you, if it's your responsibility, agree today that those 220 vessels would be built in UK shipyards under a Labour government? They could be hydrogen powered, it could be, they're exportable, it's a virtuous circle, supply chains, steel, it all flows from that. And the second question, also related to shipbuilding, is we've got the convener here from Rolls-Royce Submarines in Derby. We've got an amazing UK technology uh, based on the PWR reactors in our submarines which can be scaled into small modular reactors and I know there might be some big nuclear people in the room and I may be a little bit unpopular with raising this but that's another shipbuilding related technology which could form part of a balanced energy policy and do you see that does the panel see small modular nuclear reactors as being part of the solution for the UK homegrown technology exportable could be huge billions and billions of pounds of revenues for the UK as well as a, a homespun technology. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Ian. I'm going to go. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice example of direct, direct yeah, ministerial yeah. lobbying um, that you can do at a yeah. conference. Um, shall, 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 I, shall I answer them? I, uh, to, if I make spending commitments, my life's not worth living. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, it is entirely consistent with the policy of make more, buy more, and sell more in Britain uh, and shortening supply chains. Um, I think that's probably as far as you need me to go because um, you can read between the lines of it, I, I, would, I would hope so. Um, I'm visiting Derby to, soon um, so I'll be, uh, to, to look at the, the nuclear plants, and yes, SMR is, has got to be part of the, part of the, 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 the future. Um, I just, just to, I mean, my comment earlier about uh, where we get our uh, turbines from, it's the manufacture of the steel, uh, of, of the steel in the, in, the, in the turbines that's the problem. We're not using UK steel. For our, for, our, for our turbines, it wasn't about the weather. I, I know Siemens is doing a great job of, 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 of assembly in, uh, in, in Hull. Um, and Louis, um, thanks for the advice. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of what we need, need, it kind of goes back to what Guy was saying earlier as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, they, we, we are going to need a lot of advice in government on how we actually deliver this. That sitting in opposition when you haven't got access to everything, you, know, you, you cannot make those commitments because you haven't got, got, got all the figures, but I, I certainly welcome it. 
and uh, you know, with, as with, I mean, I am inundated with advice and, ev and, and, and evidence, but I do need it, and my colleagues do too. So please, uh, please approach us. Sam, uh, pick up anything that you want from there, but in particular, perhaps AJ's question on, on the 28 billion and how you use that. Really yeah, well. so I think the, the 28 billion is really interesting because it is a capital spending pledge, and actually, a lot of this stuff that you want to do around that money is market making industrial strategy policy, which is why it's great to see the document come out today. Basically, to give out money, I think any incoming government should also be asking for reform and putting regulation inside that and commitments to private enterprises that are going to be receiving that. We've done a lot of polling and focus group work with workers and as everyone on this panel has said, they are very excited about the green transition, but they are worried about the quality of work they're moving into. So some of the stuff that you're going to need to do uh, to ensure those jobs are good jobs is first of all, I think government needs to say, the numbers I quoted earlier, is there's a huge need to employ people in the power sector. We need a national plan that is going to say, this is our energy balance mix, and this is the number of employment we think we're going to need. And to reach that number, government is going to have to pay for training, maintenance loans so people can have the time off, little things like restoring the union learning fund to reduce the, the cost to individuals to do learning. But then also on the business side, businesses are really worried that they're going to lose skilled people once you've paid to train them. So lowering the cost to them, either through tax incentives, treating labour the same way we treat capital, for example, um, would be one way. But also having that policy commitment, having that national plan, so you know you're going to be keeping somebody for 10 years because you've got a 10-year plan. Yeah. Sue, so did you want to come in on any of those three? Yeah, just uh, very briefly uh, to say, actually, absolutely, a successful offshore wind industry, great to see. Also great to see an increasing number of offshore wind operators recognising the value of working with trade unions and recognising trade unions as partners for the future, so that's all very, very positive. Um, I'm from Prospect, but let me speak on behalf of Chesney, Unite, GMB and Prospect. Nuclear is not an unwelcome part of the picture. We are all committed to nuclear as part of net zero and as part of a balanced energy policy. And absolutely, I think SMRs have a role to play along as part of that mixed economy with some more gigawatt nuclear as well, but certainly SMRs is part of that picture. Guy, I think Louis' question sort of raised something which has slightly underlined a little bit of what we were discussing there, which is kind of how much stake direction you want in all of this, how much you kind of want there to be a, a central planning yeah. brain uh, versus how much you, you want to sort of allow innovation and things like that. Is that something you'd like to... Yeah, so, I mean, most of the... I'll, and I'll answer the 28 billion, because actually the 28 billion, although very important, is also not the most important thing, I would say. The most important thing, and this touches on uh, Louis's point, is you get the market structures that give people confidence in whatever technology they're talking about, that they're going to be able to sell it and there's going to be a demand for their products, right? Uh, and I would, you know, I, I think the most important thing that any government can do is say, right, this is what uh, this is what is going to be the demand for low-carbon electricity, and all you different technologies get out there, and if you're right, if you're right, then then do it, because then you've got giving people confidence that there is a pull for their technology. It's not all how well they're going to lobby Bill or anyone else, uh, uh, whatever government role there is. It's my technology is better than your technology and they're going to beat you in a fair fight in doing it. But, but Yeah, yeah, no, all of these markets. Like, set the outcome you want and allow the competition to happen. Then 
your 28 billion will go much further because then you'll be making some selective choices okay. about probably about SMRs. Where are the things where the UK can have a real uh, advantage? And so therefore, that's back to the pump priming thing. But you can't pump prime unless you think there's going to be something to, 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 yeah. to drive into, as it were. And so that's, you know, that's the way. The 28 billion should be should be just nudging it along, but you know that there's that pull. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting, Guy. Can I just ask, yeah. do you think government has the kind of skills to know how to target those investments to leverage the, the biggest impact? We've seen in some of the discussion around the 28 billion all sorts of different technologies mentioned. Obviously, some places where yeah. the UK can be absolutely leading, some places where it might struggle to be competitive with what's going on elsewhere. Do you think government's kind of well Yeah, I, th I think so, because I think government should actually be... Um, as, long as, it's, as long as it's ultimately trying to get to a, a world where there's, there's a real market there, the government should be relaxed about making some bets on different, on different technologies where it's kind of gone through a process to think, is this actually a technology which is going to have massive scale globally? Is the UK got an advantage versus other, other areas? So, for example, solar, we've probably got some advantages in the innovation space, but we're not going to outcompete China on that side. But in SMRs, we really do. In yeah. some of the hydrogen technologies, yeah. we really do. Um, uh, and you go through that. Will you get it all 100% right? No. Um, uh, but actually, this is an area where, where you shouldn't be totally afraid of making bets. Yeah. yeah, and a big thing is government sort of changing its risk perception so it's not sort of totally awful idea that you might fail with yeah, some of these investments. Exactly. Um, I think we've got time for one more question, uh, if anyone would like to ask one. Uh, yeah, I'll take the question. I can take two. So go on, lady in the green and the man in the grey shirt. Okay. Hi, I'm Francis. Um, I work for Lexington, which is a communications and public affairs company. Um, just in regards with solar, it's at the moment a lot of solar farms are being refused planning permission. Um, so it's great that we're getting the technology and all of these ideas, but I just wondered what your thoughts are in trying to allow these places to be built. Um, thanks. <laughs> Trust Hello, uh, Rhys McCarthy. I'm a national officer for United Union Aerospace and Shipbuilding. Just to pick up on Ian's comments um, and some of the uh, panellists as well about SMR, I think it's really incumbent that uh, any government, and I particularly hope uh, the next Labour government sometime soon, will give commitments to actually build SMRs. And I think that will give companies need confidence, our members need that confidence of those jobs that come to it. And it will tap into the huge export uh, potential for it and if you've got the backing of the UK government to build in the UK I think that's a major part of the kind of process thank you Brilliant. Um, Guy I'll start with you on those and any final comments you want to wrap in so um, so just just on the last one like the worst outcome I think with SMRs is we build we have this really long battle and we build one SMR <laughs> which becomes this kind of museum piece uh, like some of the AGRs, you know, you look at the history of uh, some of the new, you know, we, we built one design and then we thought, oh no, we're going to build another design. And there's, a, there's always a danger with that with SMRs. Like, we need, to, we need to be thinking about how do you build globally, how are we going to build hundreds of these things go, going forward. That's why the market point and the long-term market design is really important. You've got to get one going, right? You know, it's kind of, it's a, it's, it's a relatively new thing, although the technology is, 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 is to some extent familiar. So I think that that is what you have to have in, in mind. And what I worry about is we'll end up with one SMR which will be battered through and we'll, you know, some minister will open it and then we'll never 
think about it again. Right? <laughs> That'll be the worst of all outcomes because we'd have spent half a billion quid doing that. On the, on the solar point, um, this is a wider issue on planning generally, right? What is the biggest barrier to us, our chances of, of getting net zero? It really, the planning system stopping us build infrastructure all over the place, whether that's nuclear or new networks or others. If we are serious about the size of the challenge that we've got to get to, then we're going to have to have a kind of reckoning with the, with the planning system. And that was some of the intriguing stuff, actually, in, in, the, the, budget. in, the, in the budget statement, which strangely didn't get as much attention as uh, <laughs> the collapse of the pound. Um, uh, but it could be quite transformative back to, as you know, back to 2008 national policy statements. Actually, we've agreed for national reasons this stuff needs to happen. But, it's a, but it's, that's also some tough politics as well. Uh, just a fi final remark. Um, we've seen great frameworks set out by Labour over the past couple of days. Uh, there's a lot of expertise in this room and a lot of experience. I think what's really important now is that we all work with you to yeah. put the detail behind that. So on day one of a Labour government, we all know what we're doing, how we're going to deliver this and make it work. Yeah, well, I very much want to do that, uh, Sue, and the, the, the way we work in government is going to be completely different. It's got to be a partnership with, with, with industry and with trade unions. It's the only way we're going to succeed. And we've got, we, you know, when you've got this scale of ambition, it, it has to be that way, doesn't it? Um, um, but, you know, Francis, you've, you've just identified yet another Liz Trust story, haven't you? Uh, the idea that... Uh, we. You, we, we shouldn't be building solar farms on, on uh, farming land. They're dual use. The, the solar panels are off the ground. You can graze sheep under them. You can grow crops under them. Farmers get a revenue from them. I mean, what's not to like about this? Uh, it's absolutely bonkers. So absolutely, we've got to change the, uh, the, the, the planning rules to make it a lot easier. Um, I mean, just some, just some final thoughts, really. Look, the, I mean, I, I completely agree with this point. Having, when we're building one, we should be building many. Yeah, having developed the technology as we've done at, at Hinkley, I, mean, I, I went down to look at the, it's the largest construction uh, site in Europe. It's absolutely incredible. And they learned from bu building the first reactor so much that they halved the cost of building the second reactor. That's the kind of technological advance you make. If you then build another one of these, how much more yeah. uh, 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 economies of scale you're you, you, you going to uh, uh, create? And then you export it around the world. It is, it is a wonderful opportunity if we only wanted to uh, seize it with both hands. The technologies here, yeah, they are great opportunities, as, as we've, we've been saying throughout, for jobs, for skills, for uh, an economic transformation. Um, but we've got to try them. And I completely agree with Guy. We've got to try them all. Yeah, we don't actually know at this point which ones are going to be which part of the energy mix. The only way we're going to find that out is by investing into all of them. Yeah, and I mean, just on that point, I've had two interesting conversations recently. The first was with the, the Japanese energy attaché um, in talking about their glacial pace to reach net zero, but they are very excited about floating offshore wind. Um, and I asked whether they were interested in partnering with the UK on that, and his reply was, no, no, we're going to do it very well, very quickly, and dominate the South China Sea. And similarly, every one of these I go to, it seems that a new country thinks it's going to be the global leader in hydrogen, mostly all the countries that currently have a fossil fuel-based economy. So I think the UK needs to be very fast if it wants to win this race, particularly in those uh, cutting-edge technologies. 
Okay, brilliant. Thank you. That is all we have time for. Uh, thanks very much uh, to you for coming. Uh, thanks again to Tasney for sponsoring this event, and thanks very much to my brilliant panel. Just a couple of quick notices before your round of applause. Um, so we've got a bunch of events on here, and in particular two more on net zero. So tomorrow in the ACC we've got one on net zero and behaviour change. That's at 1pm in Hall 2, and at 6.30pm tomorrow we've got one also featuring Sam Albus uh, on the net zero election pitch, uh, learning some lessons from elections abroad. So with that, thank you very much to my panel.